Normally when you come to church and you hear somebody say, well, I'm under conviction, that means they've done something wrong. You can be under conviction about a lot of things. And it doesn't have to be because you did something wrong. Quite frankly, I've been under conviction that I'm not sure the church has had a big impact on a lot of people. And I'm saying that not because the people haven't come to church. It's because the... Um, a lot of people, it seems to me, are, when they got saved, they didn't change. They didn't change into someone else, and they didn't change into the likeness of Christ. And that is a problem. That's a problem within the church. That's a problem, uh, that's a problem outside of the church, in fact. One of the things that I do believe is, is that I don't believe that we have any less Christians than we had before. I know that we're lamenting all the time about how many less people actually go to church. And I'm sure that even in this church, you're going to say that there were times in which we, you know, we had them crawling off the rafters and all of that. But what has changed, especially in the world today, is is that it's, there's no advantage to you going to church anymore. At one time that you knew that you had to go to church if you were going to have business, you're going to have business. You're going to have, to have a good business. You needed to be in church uh, because that was what was expected of you. And, the, and they did business with the people that were around you in church. And your uh, social connections were all going to be at church. Uh, these things are not true anymore. They're not true anymore. In fact, is, is that going to church may get you labeled and actually get you persecuted in your work today. Because you can say, well, I believe in what the scripture says, and then they'll point out some scripture, and you know what the scriptures are that that are out there, and, and they'll say, do you believe this? And when you say you do, then they're going to say that you are, you are a, you're prejudiced, and you're everything else that there's, there is out there, and you're not loving, and, and how can you be that way and call yourself a Christian? And so I look at this generation that is coming up, this millennial generation, and I believe that, by the way, folks, this is the largest generation that has ever been born. It is the biggest, it's bigger than the baby boomers. And this generation, from what I understand from this generation, I'm pretty impressed with them. And I mean that seriously. Now, can you find a few of them that are, that are rotten? Yeah, you're going to find some rotten ones. But folks, let me tell you something. That generation they call the greatest generation, did you know that about 12,000 of them were prosecuted for uh, draft evasion? Okay, so if you want to go out and start pointing out rotten ones, you can find rotten ones in every generation. Don't think that there's not some rotten people in every generation. There certainly are. But as a rule, this uh, group of millennials are uh, impressing me. They want authenticity. They want some depth in what they get. And they are going to be the people that are going to face some persecution that you will not, we have not seen in this country before. And you can see from the screens that we've got out, on, out in our foyer and out in our hallways here, and it tells about the number of persecuted Christians that there are in the world today. And even Pope Francis has said there are more people being persecuted today and being persecuted in a very horrible way than there were at the time of the first century, right after Christ is, is, uh, is uh, resurrected and such, in the first century after that. So when you look at that, this generation is going to have to stand up more than any other generation has for a very long time. And they may not go to war, and I hope they never go to war, but they're going to be fighting a war right here every day. 
And so this could be the greatest generation we ever had. This one is a generation that I believe could be the greatest generation. Now, I recognize that we are expecting them to do more than we ever did. That is absolutely the truth. And so I believe that my responsibility being under conviction is is that I better give them the depth of the word that they're going to need in order to make it through the time that they've got in front of them. I may not be around for that, but I'm pretty sure they'll be around for it. And if you don't believe the persecution that is coming from the other countries is going to come here, then you are a little bit on the naive side. You've got to look out there and see what's going on. You're going to see that it's coming this way. So I've got to give them a, a depth that I have not... I don't think I've even done myself. I'll be very honest with you. A depth of the word, it's got to be more than what sounds like a college survey course that they're getting. And I got to start, and I start preaching. I've realized this. I'm preaching. And I believe in my heart of hearts that Christianity light's not going to cut it. And these sermons that are put together with, you know, kind of cutesy little, you know, five or six weeks of, of um, you know, Christianity light that are a sermon series, I don't think that's going to cut it. Now, could it gather a crowd of people? Yeah, it might gather a crowd of people, but I don't think it's going to, it's not going to sustain people through the tough time that, that they've got in the future. And so I looked at looking at First Peter and preaching in an expository way, which I don't believe that there's much of that going on anymore. There are some good expository preachers, but I don't know who they are. I know that there's some that are out there. And I've realized I've got to go deeper than I've ever done before, and I'm under conviction of this because I look at First Peter, and First Peter, uh, when Peter wrote this, this book, this, this letter here, the church was under persecution. And if we don't get this, if we don't get this part right here, then we're going to have a very difficult time making it through that time. And I believe that the millennials are the ones that are going to to do so. And so I had wanted to start this week in 1 Peter, but here's what happened to me. I started reading 1 Peter, and it said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I need to tell people who he is. You see, I know that a lot of people have said, well, I want to be like, I I know who I identify in the Bible. I identify with Peter because he messed up so much. I don't believe that's the guy we're talking about here. I believe Peter was the kind of guy that you would want to be like, not the person that you would say, I identify with him because, you know, he messed up so much. I can identify because he messed up. I mess up too. I believe he was a, a, an individual who was so changed, and he was, because the Lord knew who he was, chose him to be this way, and he was, he was the leader of the church. Now, why would I say this, that Peter was someone that you would want to emulate? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. First, I'm going to start here, and I'm going to give you some background on Peter, and I'm going to tell you why. Peter is the oldest of the disciples. I know we don't have any specific ages of the disciples, and most of the paintings have them as middle-aged men. And a lot of times you'll see them, they're bald, and they're, you know, they're, you know, they got gray beards and all of this kind of stuff. But that does not fit into the narrative of the scripture. That does not fit into the culture, a culture of that time. And so I went back into the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the oral interpretations of the, of the Torah at the time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus. I want to put this into the culture of the time of Jesus. 
And they had a very regimented educational life or path for young boys in Judaism. Here's what it was. At five years old, one is fit for the scripture. At ten years, that's Mishnah, the oral Torah interpretations. At 13, for the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud, making rabbinic interpretations. At 18, the bride chamber, they got married. At 20, pursuing a vocation. And at 30, for authority that is able to teach others. Now let's see if we got this. So at five, they started school. Did we do that? Yeah, we're pretty close to that, aren't we? At five, we start school. At middle school, began at about age 10, and that began, they began learning the oral interpretation of the Torah. At 13, the bar mitzvah and the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud. And marriage was around the age of 18. Imagine that, around the age of 18. And a profession at age 20. This is when they, went, they had their own profession. None of the disciples, with the except, exception of Peter, is married, at least at the time of when Jesus has his disciples with him. He's the only one that is mentioned in this that has been married. It says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, it says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and began to serve him. Folks, the price of a spouse is a mother-in-law. You understand that? You have to take the mother-in-law in order to get a spouse. This is the way that it works. This places the rest of the disciples 18 or younger, doesn't it? If you're getting married around the age of 18, and it was expected for you to get married at the age of 18, they would have been under 18 possibly. And that fits into the tradition of the time. Because the time of finding a rabbi was usually between 15 and 18. When you went out and you looked for a rabbi, you were between the ages of 15 and 18. Think about the disciples now. How old are they? They're very young. Peter has a profession. Remember what we said, 20 years of age, you'd have a profession. Matthew 4, 16 says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Now Simon and Andrew have a fishing business. Now, you, you would think, well, maybe they're partners here. But it would not have been unusual to employ your brother. They were both called at this time. But note that calling that they have. They left their nets. Realize what it says there. They left their nets. That means that possibly there's someone there to continue on with their nets. There's a business going on here. Follow me meant a great deal more than I will teach you. It meant that they should become like Jesus. See, each rabbi, when they were looking for disciples, the rabbi was the one looking for the I mean, and the disciples were looking for a rabbi. But they, what happened was when a rabbi was considering those people who wanted to be his disciple, he was looking for special things in those disciples. And many times the rabbis did not look for how the students were able to answer the questions, but what questions they would ask themselves. They would ask the rabbi. Jesus didn't just pick anyone. Understand this. See, and he doesn't now either. 
Jesus chooses special people. And if you're chosen, you're a special person. You need to recognize that. Recognize your value. Do you not know that you are of such great value that he gave his life for you? How much more value is that? Is there than that? That's the amazing part. And then note the narrative of this scripture. Simon is named first, meaning that he is older. Andrew is designated as the brother of Simon. Look at it. He says, Andrew is the brother of Simon. Speaking of Simon being more prominent, it is very evident that this is Peter's family business. He's got his family employed, but it's Peter's business. And now we get to the point of the temple tax, which you can find over in Exodus chapter 38, 26, where it tells that, that everyone, every male, is supposed to pay the temple tax of a half shekel each for everybody 20 years of age and older. So it says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24, And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the true true drachma tax went up to Peter and says, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Actually, it's a, it, the word in the Greek is actually a, a Greek. It's a stator is the word. Uh, it's, for, it's worth four drachmas. Anyway, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Look here. That would have been four drachmas. It's a two drachma tax. Two drachmas is the same as a half shekel for every male above the age of 20. So Jesus only says that Peter should pay the tax for himself and Peter. That's the only two. Do you understand what that actually means there? It means that the other disciples are under the age of 20. But how old is Jesus? Well, the scripture tells us this as well. In Luke 3, 23, it says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. When did we say that you could be a rabbi and you were able to teach others? 30 years of age. Jesus did it as soon as he could. Do you understand? He was right on at the right moment when he should be able to do it. He was 30 years of age. So they're following along the tradition that they had. So that's three reasons that we can see that Peter is the oldest of the group and he's over 20 years of age. But it's also the obvious choice for the leader to be the oldest one in the group. That is the reason that Peter will speak up and everybody else will be quiet sometimes. That was a natural thing that would happen for the leader to have spoken while the others, maybe they felt the same way. And some of those times that we have Peter speaking kind of out of turn, maybe they already said it and he was agreeing with them. I don't know if that's true or not, but I realize that he has the position. He's already taking the position of speaking for the others, maybe a little unwisely at some times. 
But quite frankly, he's taking that position. For Jesus saw in Peter the character of a leader. For Jesus will assess Peter's character in their very first meeting. And I want to, I'm going to say this more and more so you can hear it. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. He knows who Peter is. And so what happens here in John 1, 41, meets Peter. He says, and this is Andrew, he says, he found his own brother Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas means rock, by the way. It's Aramaic. And then the Greek, it's Petros, which is, uh, means rock again. Petros is the Greek translation. Petros means a detached but large fragment of rock. This is what Petros means, a detached large fragment of rock. This describes Peter as a man like a rock in firmness or reason and strength of soul. Now, everybody wants to go out and point out Peter's flaws. I don't say everybody, but a lot of people do. And they say, I want to identify with Peter because of his flaws. I would like to say to you, I know who Jesus is, and Jesus doesn't get it wrong. He knows who Peter is. Down deep, this is who Peter is. And, he, and here's the situation, folks. You see, you are what God calls you. That's what you are. You are what God makes you, not what you think you are at this moment. For what happens is when we see somebody fail, especially in the church, Christians are the most likely people to shoot their wounded and throw their failures under the bus. This is what we, we typically do. Not realizing that God is still working on people. And while they may mess up and mess up in a mighty way, they're not finished yet. And maybe the reason we throw them under the bus and shoot our failures or shoot our, our, our wounded is because we cannot see that we have changed ourselves. We should have been being changed in the likeness of Jesus Christ that, that God has wanted us to be and to be changed into. So what happens is, is that we are a people sometimes that, that don't recognize what God has. You see, God sees the image of who we truly are. He sees an image that is beyond where we are right this very minute. And see, we only see what we are. And we can't see beyond it. And we need to understand what he sees. That's, not, that's what I am. You see, we are a people who consume, and we think that's what we're supposed to do. And so we go to church and we say, well, I want something that this way or this way or this way. But in reality, what God calls us to be, we are truly a people who produce. We're to be a people who produce. When Moses is called, when Moses is called and he says, I want you to take my people and release my people, what does Moses say? I can only see what I am now, and I can't do it. God is saying to him, Moses, you don't understand. I can make you more than what you are right now. When Gideon was called, Gideon said, I'm the least of the least of the least. He's looking and he's saying, this is what I am. But you are not what you are. You are what God has called you. You are what God will make you. For we are never fulfilled until we become who we truly are. And so often we're not being who we truly are. 
Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And those who are living just as what they are right now and no more than that, they're having their lives stolen from them, killed from them, destroyed from them. And they're not able to have what God really wants to have in their lives. And those who are believing that they are more than that because God has called them more than that are finding themselves to be full of life, the life that is an abundant life. See, fulfillment comes in accepting the life that Jesus sees in you. I will say it again. Jesus was right about Peter. Now, Peter will declare Jesus to be the Son of God. Evidence of this. In Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Notice who speaks up. Who do you say that I am? He's a leader, right? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice what it says here. He didn't say, Peter, you go build the church. What did he say? I will build the church. I will build the church. On what? On this confession? On this commitment that uh, that Peter has made here? On this testimony? The answer is yes. That is the testimony. Yes. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the testimony that we have. And this testimony changes us because this test, this statement requires action when it is made as Peter has declared it. When we say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, we better take action with that. Because there's a difference between saying the president and my president. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? When we say my president, it's somebody we believe in. And when, when it's, we say my president... It is the one that we promote because we do believe in that individual. And Peter declared Jesus as the Son of God. That's not all he did. Peter so believed that Jesus was the Son of God that he would ask Jesus to command him to walk on water. Think about that for a moment. For those of you who have never taken one step in such a way that you would say that I'm taking a little bit of a chance here. I'm going with what the Lord wants me to do here. I'm going to, and, and you've always just played it safe. Remember what he's, he's, his declaration is. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, it says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if that story stopped right there? Think about that for a moment. A lot of us, are, we got out of the boat And we can't really say much about Peter because we got out of the boat, but the same thing happened to us. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Sometimes that's the best thing you can ever say. Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took, uh, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? If he was a little faith, what did the rest of those guys in the boat have? You see, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine that moment that Jesus was walking on the water and Peter says something that, you know, you know, Jesus was not saying, anybody here want to come out in the water to me? That's not what happened. Peter came up with this on his own. Lord, if it is you, command me to come out there on the water with you. You know, I, I got a feeling that Jesus just smiled from ear to ear. You know why? Somebody got it. Somebody finally got it. Of these 12 guys, one of them has got it right now. That's great. And the other, other 11 guys went, say, what? You know, are you going to do this? This is, a, is, this is not safe. You know, walking on waters, not a lot of people do that. You know that, uh, Peter? Let me ask you this question. Do you believe in Jesus in such a way that you would ask him to command you to walk on water? How about that? Would you ask him that question? Lord, I don't know what that walking on water is, but I will do whatever you tell me to. I'll walk on that water. I tell you what, you want to be, you want to be like Peter. Peter will reveal he is the rock man in what people consider his greatest failure too. Now, here's what happens with Peter. Peter declares himself as someone who will always stand up for Jesus. That's a big statement, isn't it? And, you're going to, and I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Peter wasn't who he thought he was. Yes, he was. I'll explain it to you. And so in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, uh, deny three times that you know me. You know, I, I, I go back and say, you know, people look at that and they say, Peter just didn't know who he really was. But I differ on that. Peter is who Jesus says he is because Jesus has prayed that he will strengthen the others when he has turned back to Jesus. Again, we see him as the leader of these disciples. He's the chosen leader of the church. But Peter will deny the Lord so publicly that Jesus himself will hear. This is the real, real painful thing that goes on. In Luke chapter 22, verse 60, it says, but Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, here's the situation. You're one of them. You're one of them. There he is watching the trial there at Caiaphas' house. Warmed himself up. Somebody asked him, and it says in one of the Gospels, it says, and he says this was a curse. You've got to understand how serious this is. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Let me put this together for you. It says in this scripture here, and that word returned is in the passive. 
Now, I don't know of any translations that put it this way, but it is passive. It is active when you turn yourself. It is middle when you, I mean, well, it's, it's, um, it's middle when you turn yourself. It's active when you turn, but when you are turned, that's passive. Now, I'm sure that if they had translated it like that, a lot of people would have said one of the guards turned him, but I don't believe that's what it was. I believe that he knew the voice of Simon Peter. And when he heard that voice, especially that voice with a curse, Jesus was turned. He was turned to see him face to face. And that word for looked is not a casual gaze. That word for looked is this, eye to eye. And you see this. There's Peter in this crowd, eye to eye, with Jesus. Having Jesus just heard him deny him with a curse. And so what happened? Naturally, he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, we all have at our core, our heart, who we really are. Down deep, this is who we really are sometimes. You know, we can violate who we are, but we know who we are. If you are an honest person, you are an honest person. If you're trustworthy, you're trustworthy. If all of those things, that's who you are, that's who you are. But when we violate that, we hurt deeply when we violate who we are at the core. Did Peter violate who he was at the core? Did he hurt deeply? The answer is yes, he did. He was incredibly hurt. He hurt himself. He didn't have anybody to blame but himself. And so when I looked at that, I said, but what about Judas? Well, Judas was sorry. I went back and I looked in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. I'm not going to read it to you. But Judas was sorry for the consequences, not what he was. He, was, he didn't, didn't care about what he did. It was the consequences of what he did. I mean, there's a whole lot of difference in that. Judas was a thief. Judas was captured by money. That wasn't the situation with Judas. Judas was sorry for what was going to happen because of it. Peter is, he's hurt because of what he did himself and what he did even to himself. So 1 Peter is written to tell Christians struggling through persecution to continue in hope for Jesus Christ. Why would Peter write this message right here? He is somebody who knows what it is like to fail at this. He is somebody who knows what it is like later to stand up for it as well. See, Peter is the right person to give this message. He is the right person because he is the person that we would want to emulate ourselves. This is who Peter is. Peter was the rock man. And I believe want to be the rock people. Pray with me.